0: My name's Jeff Coons, and uh, I'm here with uh, Natalia in my New York uh, studio on uh, West 29th Street in uh, Chelsea.
1: It's an amazing place. I've read so much about it, and, you know, it's been likened so much to the factory and these things, and you've really have an incredible operation going. Catherine told me there's about 200 people working here on different slates and the paintings. I mean, it's amazing. And I was asking her about your schedule. What is a normal day like for you? Are you here every day? Are you kind of, do you know everyone working here personally? I mean, 200 people is a lot.
0: You know, I work, uh, you know, relatively nine to five. Uh, But if uh, something comes up where I really have to uh, be on top of something over a weekend, you know, I'm here. I'll be here 24 hours uh, straight. But, um, you know, I have a family life and it's really important to me for uh, the way I uh, function, creativity, as far as my creativity. Uh, I enjoy my family. Uh, I enjoy the process of just letting information resonate. And so I just listen to the things that interest me and I collect it over a long period of time. So uh, to interact with my family and then just to come to work in the morning and uh, to be here at a location, uh, Natalia, that I really enjoy Mm -hmm. to be. I mean, I really like just being in my studio.
1: No, just to give some background. I mean, I'm so happy that you agreed to meet with me, and and we had I had two fantastic occasions to listen to you and to interact um, at the U.S. Embassy in Sweden in Stockholm. The first time, I think you did just an amazing thing, and and I wanted to tie that into something. Obviously, I've been reading about you, and I have for a long time. I'm a big fan, um, and you really talk about art as something that's not judgmental art that empowers you how art helped you find your own self confidence and you did this incredible event where we brought in about 30 immigrant youth from outside of stockholm and they created art for you and i've looked back at those photos and you know i just remember how excited they were and like it was unbelievable their joy in meeting you and i bring this up especially now when there's so much going on with with the Syrian refugees, and there's actually a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment in both Europe and in our own country. I mean, we have a presidential election coming up. There's a lot of crazy rhetoric going around. And I mean, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about how you have found art to kind of empower others and how you use that to give back to the community.
0: Uh, I never knew as a young uh, child the power of art. It was just something that uh, created, um, you know, resemblance to the outside world. And uh, it wasn't until I ended up in art school, because I really wasn't really talented at anything else other than spending my time in art class, that I realized the power of art and connecting you so effortlessly with all the other human disciplines. And that gave me the kind of aha moment where I realized that I could become the person that uh, I had potential to become. And it became a, uh, an enlightening device that I would be able to come in contact with myself and to be able to connect me to the external world, to, you know, be involved with uh, people. And over the years, I realized that acceptance, not making judgments, but uh, practicing uh, acceptance was the most uh, a powerful vehicle for me to keep everything at my disposal. That every image I would see, every object interact with, any sensation I would feel, to not exclude it, not in any way to um, segregate it, but to embrace it, accept it for what it is. And it's perfect in its own being, and uh, to have that at my disposal. Uh, you know Natalia, that doesn't mean that at certain moments in your life some things may have more significance, but uh, and you may be attracted to other things and have more interest in that. but it still doesn't mean that these other things uh, aren't as relevant and perfect in their own being.
1: How do you reconcile, and I am glad you use that word non-judgmental, anti-judgment with the art world, which is notoriously, quite snobby, if I may say. And I say this as an art enthusiast. I'm really passionate about it. I have a lot of friends working in the gallery scene. It's a really snobby, kind of hyper-intellectualized, sometimes not even in an authentic way, scene. And, and you've definitely, although you're the biggest star in the world, and I can say that, um, you've had your dose of criticism and you're kind of... Um, bridging this gap with reality and accessibility and kind of the highfalutin nature of the art world, does it ever annoy you? I mean, how do you reconcile that paradox in the way? Or do you feel that you're kind of the, the visionary changing the scene?
0: Uh, it
1: should be accessible, right?
0: You know, I think anybody really involved with the arts, really uh, uh, committed uh, uh, to art and transcendence, uh, understands that There's a part of the community that always really gets it wrong. And uh, uh, judgment, you know, uh, is really important to remove. There are certain areas in life that you have to make decisions. But uh, uh, judgment and uh, uh, criticism uh, is used to disempower. And it's used as a hierarchy system. And as soon as you practice that, uh, you're you're alienating all of these uh, parts of life that are no longer of, possible to be of service to you. Instead of keeping everything open and active, and if you keep everything open and active, the different kind of parallel realities all of a sudden all open up more into one, and it's it's metaphysics. And it's really at the at the core of life to really be able to appreciate it is to have the moment now connect with the eternal. And uh, it, it, the only way to do that, too, is to do it in the universal through acceptance.
1: Have you always had such an incredible perspective on, on life and your work? And and I say this again, not to sound like a sycophant or something, but I was thinking a lot about you and and. You know, I was I was a competitive ice skater, and I remember the utter fear. And, I mean, other skaters would sometimes get physically ill. They would throw up. I mean, it's so hard to put yourself literally out there under a spotlight for people to then grade you and judge you. And, you know, I remember being able to have that fear, but then I would get out there and shut it out and perform as best as I could. And in a way, Art and what you do is very much like that you – toil and, you know, pour your heart into these works that you then put out there for people to judge and later kind of take from you. I mean, it's such a loss of control. And as a control freak, I was thinking, how can he do that? You know, you make this incredible piece of art and you don't control what is then done with it in any way. I mean, is that hard psychologically or have you kind of evolved past that now?
0: You know, when you, when you make a work of art, I mean, you're you're making it yourself, but you're making it to be finished by the viewer because that's ultimately who finishes the work. And there's a gentleman, uh, Alois Regal, uh, art historian, that was the first to use the term "the beholder's share" and really recognize that the viewer finishes a work of art. And this was at the end of the uh, the 19th century that uh, Regal. Came up with the presenting art in this uh, manner, but it's true, and there is no um, control that you have other than trying to connect uh, the best that you can to what is uh, relevant, what's uh, universal, and uh, and to perform. And if society is able to appreciate that at some time, and that you can be of service, because I think what's relevant, you, you know, you grew up in. You can receive guidance from your family, your community. And what was so interesting about participating with uh, these kids that uh, come from different refugee situations is that they really just want to be part of a group. And, you know, uh, art was that group for me. I could be part of the avant-garde. I could have a relationship with Duchamp and with Dali and Picabia and Warhol and Picasso. And it's a community. and you produce to the best of your level and hopefully you're able to bring something to the table.
1: You're known as being really in touch with how you say what's relevant and and important to this generation or previous generations and and you had incredible foresight in elevating everyday objects into something more than everyday or perhaps making banality something more relevant, you know, either way you would look at it. What What trends are you seeing now? Like, what do you think will be important? We were just discussing our children and their digital obsessions and the need to detox from those. I mean, what do you think art will look like in five years, 10 years in terms of how we're reflecting society to it? What trends are you seeing
0: Well, uh, the newest technologies, uh, the surface of those technologies always tend to, you know, come in the surface of everyday life. And they're always new technologies. Uh, The arts always incorporate them, whether it's finding uh, new pigments to work with or the idea of oil for oil paints to make these pigments work that way. So uh, there's always uh, or milling, scanning uh, uh, within 3D world today. It all changes the surface, but at the core of everything, what's important in life is really to uh, connect to the uh, the metaphysical and to connect the now to the eternal. That's really where we find uh, meaning, and uh, and to be of uh, of service. Uh, uh, to your own life, that you're able to expand your parameters as far as you can, but then to try to help the community also achieve uh, its goals. You know, I loved hearing you talk earlier, uh, Natalia, about when you were uh, figure skating. And, uh, you know, within my own mind, the beautiful tensions that come to play, aesthetic because mm-hmm. of uh, of the movement and the mythic too, because It's, uh, you know, if you think about different times of history, if we go back to the uh, antique times, it's like inviting the gods into your body for that performance Mm -hmm. that you're able to perform and become, to have the strength of your own being, but to feel that transcendence to its ultimate at that moment in time. And what an aesthetic experience, you know, to just to think about... I wish I could see that performance. I can in my own mind, you
1: know. <laughs> I'll have to send you a video. I still kind of live through these. But I think you said it really well. And that's the part of it I miss so much. You know, when I when I quit, I was injured a lot. And, and I think as an athlete or perhaps in any artistic um, profession, you almost have to decide at a certain age, am I going to take the serious, studious route, you know, go to university really, or will I live the dream? Will I keep trying? I think... You know, perhaps with art you can combine, but this was really something I had to choose. And it was almost a death or a divorce or was a death of that person that only came out on that ice. Mm -hmm. The only time I really felt free. And um, my parents were immigrants, so we had a very kind of humble and difficult background. And, And so the ice was really the place where I could be the me, the aspirational me. And I wonder if that's connecting back to your work. You know, how much of your work is the current you, is the aspirational you? How connected are you to your art? How much is it that a reflection of you? Or are you reflecting other things you see? Or, you know, I mean, I'm just curious, you know, how much of yourself do you pour into that? Is this... Looking at Balloon Dog, is this, you know, a year in Jeff's life or something traumatic happened or wonderful happened or celebration happened? I know that a lot of your work has, has focused on periods of life, and I want to get a bit to that more. But I'm just, how do you kind of connect identity and your work? Or do you see it as work?
0: It's very intuitive. If I look, you know, back at my life and I uh, can see myself as a child living in part of York, Pennsylvania, that uh, I was growing up in. And I had a, a really middle-class education. I wish I would have taken advantage of the opportunity I had, even in uh, the public school uh, that I went to, to appreciate uh, education at a younger age. And it wasn't until I was probably around a sophomore in high school that I realized uh, how pertinent all of the information uh, uh, can be to uh, everyday life. So I really self-educated myself. And uh, But it's uh, an intuitive process for me, and I am very grateful for all the opportunities of people that I've come into contact with, and I've been able to befriend or share information or a type of mentorship that they uh, have given. But it's all just an accumulation of of different sights, of different experiences, of uh, you know, appreciating waking up on an early morning, and you know, feeling the uh, the humidity in the air and the light of the morning uh, sun coming up, feeling a sense of youth or vitality, and uh, appreciating those uh, moments and finding uh, relevance in it, and wanting more, wanting to continue to touch a higher level of being i'm I'm very grateful to philosophy. I came across you know people like Plato and Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, and they've always have been uh you know extremely uh rewarding uh, poets philosophers uh uh to me and you know i always uh if I ever become doubtful in any uh area or i just uh, uh feel like I need a little support. I just look to philosophy.
1: You use the word intuition a lot, and instinct, and that's certainly something that so strongly for me identifies with you. When when you look back at your kind of history thus far, you've, you've really followed your gut instincts, and you weren't afraid to do that. I mean, you were affected. You saw something about Chicago. You moved to Chicago to study there. You called up Salvador Dali and asked to meet with him. You really have been open to risk. Has there ever been a time where you didn't follow your instincts or you allowed fear to get the best of you and you regret it or?
0: You know, performing, uh, uh, intuitively is really, you know, uh, the guide and it's where you interact with what's really relevant to you that your own being brings to the, uh, uh, the forefront. And it's what's also uh, relevant to the rest of society, what you're carrying, what the universal is. When I haven't listened to myself, when I have felt uh, maybe different physical sensations of thinking about being involved in a project and do I want to make this? And uh, the only uh, time that I've maybe been involved with projects that I regretted in any manner, uh, I already was perceiving from my own being that, uh, you know, why be involved in that? That's really not the, you know, profound interest that you have. So I really have learned to, uh, to uh, listen to myself, listen to my own being, and, and to follow that. And, you know, generally I have always have uh, uh, done that in life. The only thing that you can do in the creative process is, uh, you know, follow your interests. And uh, once you follow your interests, to focus on those interests, really, you know, pay attention to them and, and uh, dwell on them. And if you do that, uh, that will connect you to the universal. It will take you to a very metaphysical place where time and space bend. And uh, that's, where, that's where you find art. That's where you find this universal vocabulary that's as relevant to you as to me.
1: You know, this This podcast is called Stand Out, and initially it's a focus on a lot of strong women and entrepreneurs, because I think we're in this age where women are really finding their voice and their confidence to, to take their space in a way, but it also focuses on, you know, people like you that have the courage to follow their instincts, and so every guest I like to ask the universal question, you know, how do you feel that you stand out? Do you try to?
0: I don't think that I now, at this stage in my life, try to uh, stand out. Uh, at one time, I had a daughter that was I wasn't in contact with, and uh, my daughter was uh, adopted, and I wanted her always to be able to find me, and she was able to find mm-hmm. me. So at that stage of my life, I think that I did want to stand out, that she could find me in the world. But uh, I just want to perform to the highest level that I can to give myself the opportunity to experience the highest level of consciousness that I am capable of doing as a human being and to share that experience. Uh, you know, we have the freedom of gesture to Experience the highest state. I mean, we can become aware of everything, but we just have to uh, let our beings experience that and to exercise that uh, freedom.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I actually, I my brother is adopted and he's 18 now. Wow, time flies. And that's something I've promised him is that I will help him find his siblings and his parents. And I think that something about biological connectivity is just visceral and something you have to feel in life. Um, but I want to talk a little bit, like as we wrap up, about the role of women in art. And I was at the Huffington Post yesterday, Um, Ariana's on our list next, but we were waiting for her and we were talking to her team and, and we were discussing a lot of the new wave of feminism and podcasts focusing on something, which you know makes me feel very old that I haven't heard this term, but like sex positive, mm-hmm. feeling that sex is not shameful, is not something guilty, that women can have sex like men. Um, and I thought of Made in Heaven because you were in so many ways ahead of that wave. Um, by 20 years almost. I mean, I think some of this is just coming out now, and we hear women's voices and men's voices being more active on kind of non-judgment around the body. And I just wanted to kind of connect with you in terms of how you see, like, has the the definitions around gender and sex and, and what women can cannot do changed a lot since that time, since you made that piece and, and just your reflections on, on gender today.
0: Uh, well, you know, with the Maiden Heaven work, I was always uh, amazed that my ex wife, uh, Ilona Staller, mm-hmm. was able to present herself with uh, really feeling very free of any guilt and shame. And so I was trying to uh, use the body for self acceptance uh, in the made in heaven work to communicate to people that, you know, first you have to accept yourself. Once you accept yourself, then you can go to a higher plane of accepting others. And I think that's the highest objective state. And uh, a lot of times the body is the first thing which, uh, refrains people from, uh, self-acceptance. But, you know, there are different times in history when, uh, you know, like when women were worshipped, when you had like uh, Gieta. Gieta was the highest uh, uh, god. And uh, this uh, feminine god was the mother of uh, the world, the mother of everything. And, it, you know, it's not until you start to develop warring societies where you start to have the male god start to dominate and become more relevant because of a warring fractions taking place. Uh, I always am uh, participating in the worship of Gieta.
1: Ah, that's fantastic. (laughs) This is exactly why we want you on. Um, No, I mean, I think it's interesting, and and your ex-wife was Italian, and sometimes I ask myself, after living four years in Sweden, where it's so funny. I mean, um, you know, my daughter was in daycare there, their subsidized daycare. It was a fantastic Montessori education, but when they received dolls, they were anatomically correct dolls. And I remember a lot of the American parents saying, oh my God, you know, I can't show this to my child. This is, this is, you know, there's a vagina or something there. And they were very shocked by this. And, you know, we even, I was also connecting with some people that uh, there's a lot of great gamers and, and gaming companies coming out of Sweden. And they would tell me, you know, our game is really successful, except there's, there's a gorilla figure. And you can see his nipples, and Americans really felt that that is inappropriate and I say all this because it's you know do you think it's it's a little bit of something about our society? Is American society more puritanical? Are we changing? Is it slow? Because I do think europe there's always been a more freer kind of open perspective um, and I wonder if you see that and if you see that in art
0: I mean, I think it has been that way, but I think tremendous change has happened uh, you know in the United States. And over the last couple of years, with uh, the changing of the laws for uh, gay, lesbian uh, uh, movement, and you know transgender, all of these different areas—I mean, this is America—and so there's been tremendous uh, change of attitudes and an openness and an acceptance of uh, of people and uh, who they're, who they are, how they uh, uh, function. So th- this has been a tremendous change and i think that in general the states has been uh, more open to uh, to the arts too in a, in a way and they appreciate the role of uh, artists uh, uh you know poets writers and that uh, the idea of culture uh, today isn't just hollywood mm. uh, that there are other uh, inclusions I'm just mentioning that because that's an area that, as an artist, I always felt that um, Europe was maybe more advanced in appreciating the contribution of uh, of the fine arts.
1: I think that's, a, that's true. But I think that we're entering and, you know, President Obama and people have been really active around widening the cultural scope for our children and education. Um, I don't know how comfortable you are speaking about politics and things like that, but the only thing that makes me a little bit um, skeptical of how gender is viewed in America is our political debate. You know, we've had some presidential camp. We have some terrible tragedies in Colorado around Planned Parenthood. And, you know, we have a iconic New Yorker, Donald Trump, who talks about women's menstrual cycles on, on, on political debates. So, I think we go back and forward and back and forth. I do feel, you know, I'm 31, I'm part of this millennial generation, and I never, ever felt any bias growing up, almost the opposite, until kind of I entered adulthood and had a child and, like, entered the political discourse more where we are a bit more behind. I wonder what you think about that, if you feel comfortable speaking about that.
0: Yeah, so really at the key to everything's education and that, uh, you know, people are able to be aware of, their own bodies and how the uh, their internal life affects the environment that's outside them, how they influence it, and at the same time how their environment influences their internal life and how they feel about themselves and how they adapt. This is basically like John Huey type philosophy, but it's really key. You know, just the act of breathing, the inside, the outside, and from basic uh, uh, levels of the understanding of the environment of You know, the community around you, how you affect the community, how the community affects you, how you're able to respect other people's uh, uh, rights and endeavors uh, as your own and to serve. To try to, you know, be self-reliant and in all means of uh, becoming what you can be and to take care of yourself and affect your environment, but then to try to provide and educate others around you. Uh, I think that's the highest calling uh, uh, that you can do, is to try to serve yourself and then serve the ones around you.
1: Jeff, last question. Who are your favorite young contemporary artists now rising, male and female, perhaps?
0: It's a tough question for me because I'm very involved with uh, my own work. And because I'm a contemporary person, I'm experiencing this moment, so I tend to look to the past. I tend to look to uh, the past, how people have had an interaction in their own time to the moment And, and what is kind of consistent in that. What there are some things that, you know, uh, keep everything really kind of fresh, but then the differences. So I tend to be involved more with artists and, and poets of the past. But uh, these uh, people aren't that uh, young. But I like Dan Colen's work a lot. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, he's, he's really uh, wonderful. I've always enjoyed uh, Dana Schultz's uh, uh, work. But I love all artists. I love all of their uh, work. Uh, but it, who I'm really thinking about right now, uh, I think about Poussan all the time. I think about Spranger all the time. Apellas, uh, I'm really looking, uh, you know, uh, also a Praxiteles and apellas and uh, uh, the ancients, you know. Uh, I like all periods of, uh, of art. And I never tire of Boucher and Fragonard uh, that like to, at the same time, show the pleasures of of the body and of being human and to enjoy it and to rejoice in it, to have a, a this dialogue always with one's own mortality, to be aware of it, but at the same time to reach an acceptance.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff. This is the third or fourth time I've been lucky to spend time with you, and you always leave me with a lot to think about. So until next time, thank you.
0: Natalia, it was great. It was great thank to be you with you. Thank you so
1: here. much. That's good. This podcast is a collaboration with Doggins Industry and ACAST, produced by ACAST, with Sandra Moline as supervising producer and Carl Rosander as executive producer.